Welcome to episode 52 of the Listening Brain Podcast. Welcome to the Listening Brain. I'm your host, Todd Houston. In this podcast, we explore childhood hearing loss through the lives of the parents and families who are on this journey and the professionals who serve them. Jennifer Wallace is a speech-language pathologist and certified AV therapist at the Atlanta Speech School. She received her master's degree in speech-language pathology from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Jennifer has over 20 years of experience providing listening and spoken language therapy in outpatient clinical settings, cochlear implant teams, and schools. She currently works in the Stepping Stones program at the Atlanta Speech School, serving children with speech, language, and learning needs in a therapeutic classroom setting. It is my pleasure to welcome Jennifer to the podcast. Well, Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Let's start with your beginning. How did you get into this field? Well, hi, Todd. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me um, as part of the podcast. Um, So, yes, I got into the field of speech language pathology. Um, I thought that I wanted to be a teacher all through my childhood Mm -hmm. and growing up. um, I wanted to be a teacher. Um, That's part of why I went to the University of Virginia to attend their um, master's in teaching program um, along Mm -hmm. with my undergraduate degree. But as I got into that program, I realized that I wanted a bit more variety, um, larger scope of practice, I think. Mm -hmm. So I started to look at what was interesting to me, uh, linguistics, psychology, um, other, you know, field related fields, working with kids and found uh, communication sciences and disorders. Um, And so I switched to that. And um, looking back, it seems like it should have been an obvious choice. I have um, two aunts, my mom's sister and my dad's sister, who are both speech language pathologists. Um, So it should have been obvious. Um, And my my brother's (laughs) wife is also a speech language pathologist. So there are four of us in the family. Um, But it took me a little while to get there initially. Um, but once I did, I really um, enjoyed it and um, and then uh, went to University of North Carolina for my master's degree mm-hmm. at Chapel mm-hmm. Hill. Um, and when I was there, I was working on um, a training grant, working with mm-hmm. children um, with with hearing loss, children who are deaf or hard of hearing. And, mm-hmm. you know, initially when I started that, I assumed that it would be more signing. Um, But as I got into the coursework, I realized that there was um, a whole other side of it um, with listening and spoken language. And the more I learned, the more um, I was interested and um, just sort of never looked back. And the rest is history, as they say, right? (laughs) Exactly. So uh, going to Virginia, then to UNC, we we share some good friends and 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 colleagues who are still in North Carolina. Yes. Um, so you, you were working with Melody Harrison, who probably had the grant at the time. Yes. And I think exactly. we talked uh, in the past about, um, I might have overlapped a little <laughs> bit of time with you. I'm not, I can't remember exactly. 
Yes, uh, I think there was a year that we were we were both at North Carolina around the same time. Right, mm-hmm. right. So I I loved UNC Chapel Hill, and of course, it's been in the news this week, unfortunately, with yes, the yes. situation that happened there. Mm-hmm. But um, such a uh, vibrant campus and uh, such a reputation for what they do and their training program, not only in speech, but, you know, just just a great university all around. Yes, I loved it there. I am so grateful for all that I learned in speech pathology, but then also um, getting getting my feet wet with listening and spoken language. Um, it was it was a really exciting time to be joining the listening and spoken language field mm-hmm, also. Mm-hmm. Um, this was around 2000 or so, 2001. Mm-hmm. Um, and so newborn hearing screening um, had right. really become, you know, standard practice around that time. Mm-hmm. And um, cochlear implants were growing in popularity. So there was so much to learn. Um, and it was a, a great time to get into the field. And I was I was so glad to have been introduced to that Um by Melody and then Catherine mm-hmm. Wilson Linder mm-hmm. um, and you as well um, through that program. Awesome. And so, where did you go from there? So you finish your your uh, master's program. You have this uh, newfound love for kids with hearing loss and spoken language. Where did that take you? So I did my clinical fellowship um, in a couple of years. Um, with Pediatric Speech and Language Services in North Carolina, which Mm -hmm. was a wonderful, um, uh, it was a small practice at the time. It's been growing ever since. Mm -hmm. And we did a lot of contract work, um, both in schools and early intervention, primarily with children who are deaf or hard of hearing. So that was another great experience for me to be mentored by, by professionals who were a little further on the journey than me and um, get some experience working with that with that population. Um, uh, so I really was fortunate to to start out there. And then after that, I moved on to the Listening Center at Johns Hopkins University. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's their cochlear implant program. So I was right. there for about two and a half years, um, based in Baltimore, of course, but I served mostly um, the families who are in the Washington, D.C. metro area. And and so were you there when Naparco was there, Dr. Naparco? Yes, yes. He was the director then, and it was amazing to learn from him and his whole team and the the amazing center that he created there. And uh, you know, they had the relationship with the River School, which yes. was... Right down the street from the AG Bell Association, which we we would go over from time to time to do, do different things with them. But uh, yes, yeah. exactly. And I was um, because of that relationship between um, the two organizations at the time. Uh, my office was was based in the River School, so I was sort of in residence, even though I worked for the cochlear implant program, and that gave me. Um, additional exposure to kids, both typically developing kids and kids who are deaf or hard of hearing um, in a school setting um, and watch the wonderful educators and SLPs there. Um, So that was a great companion experience to working with the implant program there. And when you were there, did you work with uh, Shelly Howard Robinson? Yes, yes, yes. We did work together at the time. And um, Mm -hmm. yeah, she's Still a great friend, yeah. Small world, isn't it? So she was, <laughs> Such a small world, yeah. She was um, at uh, University of South Carolina with the mm-hmm. did uh, auditory verbal specialization when I was there. Yes, and then she eventually went 
to the Brevard School. I think she's back yes. in Carolinas now, but uh, at the time that so. was uh, where she settled down for quite a while. She right. Was there. Yes, we we did overlap there, um, and then after I um, left the DC area, I returned to Atlanta, where my family was, um, and joined Children's Healthcare of Atlanta right. in their cochlear implant program. Um, and that was the time period where I finished my AVT certification, now LSLS certification, um, and really got a lot of great experience. Again, working in the cochlear implant program, working with a wide variety of families and, and um, kids at different points in their um, listening, listening journey. Um, and I was there for um, three years at the time, and then um, moved to the Auditory Verbal Center here in Atlanta, mm -hmm. um, which was another great experience to um, really um, develop my auditory verbal skills and learn from other professionals and um, really grow in my parent coaching, I think, um, mm -hmm. and expand the therapy techniques that that um, that I had in my in my toolbox. So I spent five years there. And then ended up mm -hmm. going back to Children's Healthcare of Atlanta mm -hmm. for another um, six years, um, again, wow. working with the cochlear implant program. And um, while I was there, though, it, in addition to working with kids who are deaf or hard of hearing, um, I got a chance to do a lot of work with um, kids with other speech and language needs. So I was doing mm -hmm. lots of evaluations, um, child language, speech sound disorders. Um, so that was a nice um, compliment as well, so that I was able to uh, see a different side of speech pathology mm -hmm. while I was continuing my AVT work, um, which I think is always nice to, to see different um, aspects of, of communication um, difficulties um, and different therapy approaches. Right, right. Yeah. And I think seeing the sort of these other uh, disorders, so to speak, or other challenges that children are having outside of hearing loss um, mm -hmm. is always very informative because, you know, I, I still do a little bit of that, not as much as I used to, but it's always interesting to, you know, have a different frame of reference in a sense. And when you go in to work with those children, whatever the diagnosis might be. But I, I think what also is very important, and I think we may have talked about this before, about um, and sort of like with the River School having typical peers, mm -hmm. knowing what typical development should look like, right, um, and then being able to work with kids with hearing loss and being able to compare. And I, I, I tell my grad students now, they don't, they kind of look at me like I'm crazy <laughs> half the time. But I, I say, you know, you, you need to really understand typical development uh, or you're not going to recognize atypical development. Right. I think so, too. I, I, I agree. And I think it also helps to have um, seen some some other some other conditions that might um, co-occur with hearing loss, too. So That's right. um, I gained a lot of experience in um, children who had characteristics of autism spectrum disorder mm -hmm. um, right. during that time or um, childhood apraxia of speech or phonological mm -hmm. disorders. And so, you know, knowing that, like you said, in, in a child who has typical hearing, you're more likely to identify it in a child with, with hearing loss as well, I think. I agree 100%. You know, it's, it's been you know, just listening to you and, and the experiences you've had, you've worked with two different cochlear implant programs, two very high power, you know, 
lots of production, so to speak, uh, both of them, well-known, different auditory verbal settings. I I don't know if there's many other people out there in the field that's had the, the breadth and depth of experience that you've had. Well, I've been really fortunate to have all these experiences. And I, I do think that from each one, I can really look and, and see where I grew as a professional. Um, at the time, it might not have, you know, stood out to me. But looking back, I can definitely see um, where I've grown and, and where I've been able to learn, not just from colleagues, but from families I've worked with, too. Um, sure. Yeah, so it's been it's been a, it's been a great experience, and I think that also having been in different um, areas with listening and spoken language, I've seen different styles of um, auditory verbal therapy too, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and been able to incorporate different elements of that style or um, technique um, the, of the approach into my style as well. Um, and I'm grateful for that for sure. Yeah, that's you know, having that those different innocence uh, colleagues and mentors along the way are, you know, just being able to frankly steal some ideas from people Mm -hmm. from time to time. I kind of miss that actually. I don't, (laughs) I don't really have that. I can go peek over someone's shoulder and say, (laughs) how did you do that? You know, or compare notes, not as much as I used to. Right. (laughs) Um, So it's, it is very nice to, yeah, to be able to, to say, you know, here, here's a kid I'm working with him. What do you think about this? You know, and just Mm -hmm. compare notes. Um, I had, Denise Ray, who was on faculty with me uh, up until a couple of years ago, and she retired. Well, she retired, then she came back, then she left again. <laughs> uh, we brought her out of retirement. Um, so she and I would, you know, compare notes on different things. But uh, but now that I'm sort of the only one doing AV right now on faculty, we're hoping to add someone eventually mm-hmm. to do at the uh, to be a clinical instructor. But uh, but it'd be great to. Um, to have that sort of sounding board that you right. can go to from time to time. Yes, for sure. I'll just have to call you up now and just say, oh, Jennifer, please do. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I got this kid. Please do. I would love that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you've, you've landed now at the Atlanta speech school. Yes. Yes. Um, I've been here a little over four years, just started my fifth year. Um, now that we've started the new school year. Um, and, you know, I think in when I when I was coming to the end of my time at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, that was around 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, I really was sensing that I needed a change. Um, it can be a really intense environment being <laughs> in an outpatient clinical outpatient sure. clinical environment. Um, so I I just sensed that I needed a change and kind of did a 180 and went into a classroom setting. Uh-huh. Um, at Atlanta Speech School. And above and beyond going into a classroom setting from a clinical setting, I also am working with kids mostly who are typically hearing. Um, I am do- still doing some work with with kids um, individually and within my class um, who are deaf or hard of hearing, but most of my um, caseload at the moment are kids who are typically hearing who have um, language delays as well as some some learning um, challenges. Um, right now I'm in kindergarten um, serving two kindergarten classes but I've also worked with pre-k here uh, in the stepping stones program of Atlanta Speech School and I love it it's it's been been great to be in a totally different setting um, and sort of using using different skills again, so learning mm-hmm. a little bit more and using some different skills, adding some more to the toolbox. 
Well, can you describe a little bit more? Like you, you mentioned how the River School was set up with an SLP and a teacher in every classroom. Mm-hmm. Is that a similar kind of thing that's happening at uh, where you are now at, at the Atlanta Speech School? Yes, it's a it's a co-teaching model, uh, and every classroom um, has an educational specialist, an occupational therapist, um, an SLP, and an assistant teacher. Um, sometimes oh we, yeah, sometimes we we um, uh, divide our time between. I divide my time between two classes, but um, the kids have those um, professionals working with them on a daily basis, and it's um, a very collaborative model um, to help meet the needs of the whole child. Um, in that way. So it's been really amazing, again, learning from those other professionals too, and and watching them in action and working together with them in a collaborative way. And so it's, is it both push in and pull out kind of things, depending on what the needs are? Exactly, exactly. I'm I'm teaching the class sometimes. Sometimes I'm I'm supporting and doing push in therapy, and sometimes I am kind of pulling out of the classroom or to the side, I guess, mm-hmm. um, in individual or small groups. Um, so it's all of the above. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. Sounds like a really wonderful model that all the kids would benefit from. Yes, we we I love it, and it's um, we we are just amazed at the growth um, each year um, from the kids who from where they start and and where they where they are when they when they leave us. Right. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I, that you did recently was you did a presentation for the AG Bell Symposium, the Lissell Symposium, mm-hmm. and you talked about executive functioning. In yes. children. So I wanted to visit that topic, if you don't mind. Sure. And, and so let's first start there. What, what is executive functioning for those who, who are maybe less trained or don't, haven't heard that term yet? So executive functioning skills are really a set of skills um, that help to direct your attention, your prior prioritization of resources, um, your impulse control, working memory, all those all those processes um, that really support and drive learning. Um, so it's not necessarily the content itself, but it's how you take in that information, how you process that information, how you hold on to and use that information, and then um, use that within within whatever environment to do the tasks that you're doing on a daily basis. It might be a school-related task or it might be a life-related task, but those mm-hmm. executive function skills help you to plan, organize, and execute um, all of those all of those tasks on a daily basis. And so th- obviously these things can sort of uh, show themselves, those challenges mm-hmm. during a school day. But mm-hmm. as you were saying, this can also be at home too. I mean, this is mm-hmm. not just tasks at school these are living you know a child who's you know going through their day may have some of these challenges and so whether at school or at home they may have some issues that are noticed like right. so parents may notice some of these things and of course teachers and educators and SLPs will notice these things as well mm-hmm. so let's go a little bit deeper and, and sort of describe some of the behaviors in a school setting that might come up and then maybe compare to what how that may translate at home kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Right. So a lot of times I think we we are used to seeing um, attention as sort of being mm-hmm. the primary one that 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 
is noticed first. Um, and so, you know, there definitely is a link um, between executive function skills and ADHD. Um, there's some professionals out there and some researchers who kind of think there's a lot of overlap there and that ADHD really is executive functioning skills. Um, right. Again, not there's not a full overlap, but there's a lot of similarities. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of times you might see attention. So this might um, look like distractedness um, or right. um inability to shift attention appropriately between tasks within within a class. But it also might look like um, memory, so working memory. Mm-hmm. So um, can you follow directions? Can you follow through and complete a task? Are you halfway through a task, but then you're distracted and you start on something else? Um, it also might look like uh, impulse control. So if a child is having a hard time um, controlling those impulses, you know, to call out an answer or um, maybe to take a toy from a friend or to give a friend a hug when the friend was not expecting a hug or um, any of the above, Um, any of those impulse control issues that we often see in young children. Um, It might look like organization. So a child who has a hard time following a sequence of tasks within a classroom. Um, I know in my kindergarten classroom, since it's the beginning of the year, we're trying to, um, you come in, you put your folder in the, in the, mailbox, you put your backpack in the cubby, you wash your hands, and then you start on your morning work. So those kind of tasks, they might need reminders for sequencing. Mm -hmm. Or they might need um, help initiating a task, they might get a little bit stuck as they as they begin a task. So, you know, I think a lot of times, um, people think about uh, older kids, say middle schoolers, Mm -hmm. or high schoolers, college students, as they're organizing and planning, studying, you know, meeting deadlines, things like that. And all those things definitely are important. But these skills start in in really young children, and they can be right. important and show up in the preschool in kindergarten classroom as well. And, and so, it, oh, at home, yeah. oh, sorry, yeah. <laughs> I was yeah, going to say at home, it might look like um, they have a hard, again, a hard, a hard time um, completing a task, a sequenced task. So maybe um, their morning routine as they get ready for school in the morning, um, brushing their teeth and getting their clothes on and having breakfast and those sorts of things. Um, or it might look like um, difficulty, you know, cleaning up their their toys or getting distracted when they're when they're cleaning up their toys. So those are our impulse control as well. But those are some examples of how it might look at home compared to how it might look in the classroom. So with impulse control, Mm -hmm. I have to, what comes to mind are those videos that you see sometimes uh, that, you know, ask the questions, you know, why young men die before young women. And it's like, (laughs) these guys are, you know, doing backflips off a two-story building or something, you know, and, or some other strange little stunt they're trying to pull. And obviously they fall and crash and whatever that they don't really have great impulse control. Mm -hmm. Some of those teenagers, some of those young 20 somethings. Yeah. I would say even some older males (laughs) seem to have issues with impulse control Mm -hmm. uh, that may lead to broken bones or worse sometimes. (laughs) True. True. Oh, and some of what I've been reading lately says that a lot of that can be um, related to working memory 
and even things like nonverbal working memory, which you don't think about that. You think about working memory as maybe being able to follow a direction or remember mm -hmm. a sequence. But with nonverbal working memory, um, some of what I've read has talked about um, you're picturing what has happened to you in the past or you're picturing what might happen to you in the future. Mm -hmm. And so if you are struggling with that aspect of working memory, you might not picture what would happen if you do something risky. <laughs> right. So, you <laughs> so, might, so it's you all related. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, all, it's all related. Even though it's impulse control, it also um, might be other aspects of executive function too. Yeah, just, um, that, That's really just, interesting, not in having the working memory to, to sort of understand what the outcome could be mm -hmm, in that mm -hmm. sense or, it's or all remembering related. what happened before or what happened to my friend when he tried it and you know right. ended up in the hospital right um, it's very all related. interesting yeah. yeah it's all related so it's very interesting uh how and i think we're just learning more and more about the brain of course and neurologically and and cognitive cognitively how all these things are connected mm -hmm. it's really fascinating Yes. And I was even more um, fascinated to learn that um, the fastest time or the, the time of, of most growth of executive function skills in a person's life is between the ages of three to five years. Really? Mm. Um, yes. Yeah. So, you know, it starts at birth and, you know, continues throughout life. And, and there is um, another area of growth during the adolescent years, but really mm -hmm. between the years of three to five, there's an opportunity to start building the groundwork, the foundation for those skills, um, so that hopefully some of those skills will translate to um, other tasks later on, later on in life. Um, and I think that really spoke to me as a therapist, particularly um, mm -hmm. an auditory verbal therapist, that so many of us are working with kids and families uh, between the ages of three and five years, certainly during those early childhood years. And what a great opportunity to um, build those skills into what we're doing to give them an even better foundation for, for the future. So in talking about building those skills, so uh, I was um, talking to another colleague uh, the other day, actually, and the question was asked uh, about executive functioning in a child and a strategy that she employs is, is she will ask the child to explain what they're going to be doing. Mm -hmm. And she used the example of, you know, the child has to go to the restroom and, and the child says, I'm going to go to the restroom. No, she says, no, I want you to explain every step of what you're going to do to go complete that task. You're going to get up. You're going to walk to the door. You're going to turn the doorknob. You're going to walk down the hall. You're going to push the door. You're going to go into the restroom. You're going to do your business. You're going to mm -hmm. wash your hands and you're going to walk back. You're going to come in the door. You're going to sit back down. So would that be one strategy in some cases that could be used of just really detailing exactly what um, a, a child is going to do in a task? Definitely. And I think that's a great example of scaffolding, you know, which right. we do in many areas of speech pathology. But I think it's even more important when you're thinking about executive function skills. Um, and that's a great example from your colleague. Um, same thing with, you know, washing your hands or brushing your teeth or right. packing up your backpack. Um, we think of that as being one activity. 
but right. if you break it down, um, a new learner um, would need a little bit more support in that to know, like you said, exactly what you do. Um, and then as as time goes on, as they get more used to those steps, uh, you can sort of collapse it into one activity again, whether it's going to the restroom or brushing right. your teeth, or like I said, in my kindergarten classroom, uh, our morning routine, that mm -hmm. becomes one big step instead of several steps. Um, but that is a great way to start. We also use a lot of uh, visual scheduling um, right. for, for younger mm -hmm. kids, too. And that sort of relates back to what we were saying before of um, what do you picture yourself doing or what right. um, what is next? So, you know, a, a great photograph or a drawing of, of what the next activity is to give them an idea of, okay, this is what we've already completed. This is what we have yet to complete and knowing uh, the sequence of it. So, th yes, those are just a few examples of how we, we scaffold and support for this age group. That's incredible so yes what about um some older kids and this mm -hmm. those uh clinicians that are out there teachers that are out there that may have maybe let's say middle school or high school student mm -hmm. i know you're working with younger children mm -hmm. but what would be some of the some ideas there just to give someone a place to start I think it would be a lot of um, similar things, but maybe mm -hmm. geared towards someone who is a little bit older. So right. like you said, breaking breaking things down into smaller steps. So if it's something like, um, you know, working on a, a project for school, um, then really breaking it down into each individual step and maybe if attaching deadlines to it. Um, that's where, you know, writing things down or um, note taking can come into play. So I know that mm -hmm. there are um, clinicians who work with older um, students, older kids um, who employ those sorts of strategies. I think there are a lot of similarities, but it's it's sort of geared towards an older older group um, who have a bit more skills to work with at this point, but still need a lot of scaffolding and support. Right, right. You know, I, you know, it's just dawning me that you know sometimes people, um, like even my grad students or just colleagues, you know, will procrastinate on on projects. Mm -hmm. And I think um, they're looking at the project in its entirety, like it's just this big, huge thing, which it might be a lot of work yes. involved. But they're looking at the like like the whole thing at at once. Rather than looking at, okay, let's just start here and do yes. this first, and then we can go to the next step, and then the next step. And I think uh, it's now sort of dawning on, dawning on me now that, you know, it could be more of how they are approaching from an executive functioning um, kind of perspective, how they're seeing these projects or these tasks. They, they can't sort of break it down in the beginning. Yeah. They just see this huge thing in front of them. And so there's like, oh, I'm not going to do that. Right. Instead of, like you're saying, scaffolding and taking a step back and say, okay, what can I do now? Right. And then what can I do, you know, next? And, and, then, and then it's more manageable. Right. Um, I even took that approach, I think, with my LSLS, my AVT certification, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. is that I... It, 
looks like a huge daunting right. task, you know, if you look at all of the different requirements. Um, but I did, I broke it down. Okay. And then I said, okay, what can I do right now? Okay. I can get my list of, of sessions together um, and get that right. signed by my mentor. Okay. I can ask, you know, families for reference letters. And when you break it down into smaller tasks, it, it doesn't seem quite as, as daunting um, as just, you know, the big, the big task that's in front of you. Yeah, exactly. But it, but that's a skill, you're right, that has mm -hmm. to be learned. Um, and I think that, you know, certainly um, people who are working with middle school and high school students can be um, really impactful in that if they teach that in addition to the content that they're teaching. Um, but we can right. also, you know, those of us who are working with younger kids kind of get them used to that um, mindset with mm -hmm. a visual schedule or scaffolding into smaller tasks. Never too early to start. For sure. That's right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So you you mentioned uh, your little certification, and so what advice would you give maybe that that uh, newer person in the field that's just starting to go through little certification, or they're thinking about you know getting that certification? What advice do you give them? Would you give them? So I think the the things that were. Um, most important for me was to take advantage of opportunities for learning and opportunities for building relationships and mentoring. Those are the things that I think were were the most important to me throughout the process. Um, taking advantage of every opportunity I could to to read something um, related to um, LSL practice or uh, to observe another professional, to get to know another professional, uh, even just sort of being in different settings like I was um, mm -hmm. and seeing different styles. I think all of those things have, have helped me. Um, and I try to um, pay it forward by keeping an open door as much as I can for observers and um, always having those conversations and taking the opportunity to um, talk with with someone who is interested because I think that those of us who um, are more experienced in this field um, have a responsibility to do that for for those who are who are newer um, in the field. So I think that on both sides for for both um, current professionals and aspiring um, professionals in this field, I think those um, it's great to build those relationships and and take advantage of every opportunity um, to connect. That's that's great advice. Great advice. Well, Jennifer, how can people reach out to you if they have questions or want more of your advice on how to be successful in this whole little area? How can so, you reach out? So I'm um, at the Atlanta Speech School, um, and my email address there is probably the easiest way, uh, jwallace at atlantaspeechschool.org. Perfect. Yes. Well, Jennifer, good luck with everything you're doing, and you are such an inspiration. So I really appreciate you joining me on the podcast. Thank you for the opportunity, Todd. It's been, it's been great. Thank you. I want to thank Jennifer for joining me on the podcast. And if you are not familiar with the Atlanta Speech School, please check them out. They're doing some wonderful work there, and I've always admired Jennifer and, and really the entire staff at that school. It's really doing remarkable work. So thank you for joining me on the podcast, uh, dear listeners, and uh, I will be back again in a couple of weeks with another episode of the Listening Brain Podcast. 
Until then, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.